Mount Calvary Baptist Church in Charleston, West Virginia welcomes you to our weekly time of worship and study of God's Word with Pastor Jesse Wagoner. So sit back, relax, and get comfortable, because when you're here, you're home. Uh, I've started receiving a new form of communication, not a new form of communication, a new line of communication would be the way to say it. Our daughter who lives in the Charlottesville, Virginia area. Uh, has uh, three daughters, and uh, they bought them this, I don't even know, I've never seen it, this phone, but it's a, it's a cell phone for kids, and it doesn't do data, so they can't get on the internet. They just send texts and, and phone calls, and the parents can lock which numbers they can call, so it's very safe and that sort of thing. So suddenly, Julie and I have started getting grandkids' texts on our phones, and some of them are just like, I'm not sure what this, what, what this even means. She says she has to go do some chores. And it says, okay, bye. I need to eat. Bye. I love you more than you can wash. <laughs> and see you bye. So that's kind of how I text too, by the way. And uh, Ivy also, uh, I think she might have a good career as a comedy, uh, a comedy writer. She says, Papa, I, I made up a joke. Can I tell it to you? Like, of course, you know. What did the volcano say to the baby volcano? I lava you a lot. <laughs> now, you may not think that's funny or not, but it's like, this is delightful to receive these messages. And, and, and Julie received a message from Elise, who is, she's six. Okay, one of them six, anyway. <laughs> so uh, she, she types the letter A in text, the letter B in text, C, text. So she was sending the entire alphabet one text at a time. And she got down to the, to the end, and I think she left out Y, so she went back and, you know, X, Y, Z again, so we got that. So we're enjoying those messages that we enjoy. Well, God has sent us a message so we would know what Christmas is all about. And if you want to go to Luke chapter 2, we're going to take a look at that wonderful text of Scripture. I would imagine most of us could probably quote these first verses of Luke 2 from memory. I mean, we hear it every year, we read it every year, some of you read this passage to your family every year as part of your own personal Christmas celebration. We've heard it quoted every, you know, every Christmas pageant we've ever heard. We've heard Charlie Brown do it in his special. I mean, we've, we've heard this again and again and again. And the, the, the text that's before us sort of enters our understanding of, of Christmas, and it's very familiar. We've been looking at one particular verse in this passage and it's, if you don't just, just scan down the page to verse 11. One simple, and basically it's a text-sized message, if you want to say it that way. Given to a group of shepherds out in their fields, taking care of their sheep. And uh, an angel shows up and tells them, among other things, these words. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Savior, Christ, Lord. We've been looking at those terms and trying to just kind of flesh them out in our scriptural understanding. We first looked at uh, that first one, this one who is the Savior. That's what he came to do. He, he was on a mission to save us from our sins. We also, last week, uh, we sort of had a bonus one where we looked at the name Jesus, which literally means God saves, God embedded in the name of Jesus, this concept that he's all about saving people like us. And then we looked at Christ, the anointed one, the one who was selected, the one who was empowered. We looked at the the fact that we were told in Acts that his anointing occurred when he was baptized and the Spirit of God descended on him in the form of a dove, and we looked at that passage. So he is the perfectly qualified, specifically designated one to be the Messiah of the Old Testament 
and the Savior that we know. Today we're going to look at this last word of this trilogy. It says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. Lord. In the days of Luke when he wrote this text, the word Lord could be used in a sort of common sense. Someone who was your superior, someone who was uh, over you, your supervisor or something like that. In the slave master world, a master could address his, his master as Lord. It was a common word. But uh, when the writers of the New Testament had to select now Greek words to apply to the concepts they knew in Hebrew, from which was, as being Jews, was the language of worship and the language of their upbringing, when they come to this word that we know as Adonai, which was applied to God as the supreme, God who is the superior, when they looked through their vocabularies, the Spirit of God helped them in this process, inspired them in this process, They use the word Lord to apply to this Old Testament word of Adonai, the superior one, the one that we give deference to who is above us. And when it's applied to the Lord Jesus, it's not just one who is a superior. It is the one who is the superior of all superiors. It's stated in a superlative. He is Lord. He is the highest. So it is who he is as the supreme being. In fact, Jesus is Lord. Every time we say it, we are saying he is Lord. He's higher than us. Every time we would address him as Lord, whether in prayer or in praise, we address him as being the superior of all things. And we say it this way, he is God, he is above all else, fully God. And this God, as we see in this context, in what we understand of the the incarnation, as much as we can comprehend the incarnation, is God now becomes man. He did not give up his godness to become man. He did not overpower his humanness when he became because he was God. So dwelling in this one perf- person perfectly. I would choose to say the word combined, but I don't even think it's a sufficient word. Completely entailed in one person is that he's fully God and fully man. Now, you understand as well that Luke, when he sat down to write this book that's in front of us, it's dedicated to one named Theophilus. If you go back to the very beginning of the book, he dedicates the book of Acts, which he also wrote to the same person. And we don't really know who that is. But when he sat down to write this book, to set in order an accurate description, an accurate record, an accurate history of the things of the Lord Jesus during his earthly time, he didn't write it to Mary and Joseph. Now, we sometimes interact with the narrative this way. It's the Christmas story. So we get into Mary and Joseph's story as well we should. Or we come to the, the, the story of him doing the miracles. We, we relate to that sort of as it rolls out in a, in a sequential narrative that's embedded into the text. But probably around the mid to late 60s AD, approximately 30 plus years after the time of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Paul was, had a traveling companion by the name of Luke. We also know Luke was a physician. And he began researching, he began writing, and of course we understand that the Spirit of God brought all this perfectly together because it's inspired by God. But he pens this, and there was a particular audience that was going to read this for the first time. It was not 21st century Christians that was going to read it for the first time. That was not in his mind as the audience. Now, he probably, and I just, I'm speculating here, I suspect that Luke had no idea that we'd still be reading his text thousands of years later. Maybe he sensed the Spirit of God working in him. Maybe he knew fully well that what he was writing was of divine origin, or perhaps not. We know that it was what his awareness was. We can only speculate. But he was writing to a people at a particular time. And the first people that, when this, this text entered their experience and not everybody had a bible like we have in our hands or access to it 
someone would have opened a little scroll and began reading these words. And when they first heard this Christmas story, there was things going on in their world that made this even more pertinent to them, at least in the particulars than it would even to us, even though it's blessed to us. Now there's some names that are mentioned in Luke chapter 2. There's actually six of them that are mentioned. Of course, Mary and Joseph are mentioned in verses 3 and 5 and so forth. David is mentioned as far as the prophetic declaration in verse 4. Jesus is mentioned twice, although he's not mentioned by name in chapter 2 of Luke. He's always just mentioned as a baby. And then back in verse 2, there's one who's known as Quirinius, the governor of Syria. We, uh, we use that as a marker to try to figure out when Jesus was born because you understand even though we see B.C. counting down to zero and A.D. starting from the time of Christ, that doesn't mean the makers of calendars got it exactly right. So we were trying to figure out the exact date. The interesting thing was Quirinius was a governor of Syria not once but twice. He had two different terms, so it gets a little confusing, and that's not our point today. But as this text unfolds, if you look in verse 1, we run into the name that I want to spend some time looking at this morning. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This, this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. You know those words very well. So why does Luke include the detail he could have just says there happened to have been a census. That was not an extremely uncommon thing. And it was trying to get everybody to make sure everybody got on the tax rolls. This was, this was to catch all the tax dodgers and the tax avoiders out there. Because uh, Rome was very interested in the money flowing into their coffers and out of the pockets of their subjects. That's why they had people like tax collectors. One we know by the name of Matthew who left his money collecting behind and became a follower of the Lord Jesus. And we have the Gospel of Matthew as a result of that followership. So he could have left that out. He said, there happened to have been a census. He could have said it was in the days of Quinarius. That, that, that. But why does he include the phrase, the name, Caesar Augustus? We just might think that's a little tidbit of history. But I assure you, every word, every name, every arrangement of Scripture is there for a particular purpose. So let's talk about this man that we want to call, that is called here, Caesar Augustus. And I want to think about him. If you want to see what maybe he may have looked like, you can look at this picture if you want. Most of the depictions and casting, that's a bronze cast uh, of a sculpture, and uh, were, were, were actually created after his death, so we don't know exactly how, how well it, it depicts him. Oftentimes, uh, people of note, as is in our day, you know, when they have a public depiction, they kind of want it gussied up a little bit from real life. It's kind of like a first century Instagram filter, if you know what that is. Okay, that's what that is. But that's, that's what he looked like. Now, he has a very interesting history. If you go back to 44 BC, just uh, roughly four decades before the time of Christ, the man who was in power in the Roman Empire, and of course Palestine, Canaan, Israel, was all under the domination of Rome even then. 
as they had been under the domination of the Greeks before that, under Alexander the Great and then those that followed him. There was a man on the, on the ascendancy that ascended to the superior position in Rome by the name of Julius Caesar. They had, before that time, had what was known as the Roman Republic. There was a Senate, and it was sort of maybe kind of a representative government. And some of our concepts of a representative republic, a government like we have, comes from those early concepts. Although, to be in the Senate, you had to be of a certain class of people, the aristocracy, okay? Normal people couldn't get in, okay? So it was a little bit different. And they had the power in their hands, and Julius Caesar comes along, and if you'll allow me to simplify very complicated Roman history... He wanted all the power for himself, and he sets himself up as being a dictator. And by the way, if you want the history of the Roman Empire, I can tell you how the history goes. By the way, if you want the history of the world, it goes the same way. It's a quest and a lust and a drive for power, whether it be nations or armies or emperors or whatever. That's just, that's just you know, if you read your history books, it's all about going to war with somebody to do something to someone else and somebody's getting up. So the, the, the senators decided, or at least a group of the senators decided, that Julius Caesar was getting a little too big for himself. They did not want a dictator. They wanted the power. So they invited him to the Senate to, to, for a special event. And while he was there on the Ides of March, he is stabbed to death, 26 stab wounds in his body, and he is killed by the senators, primarily by led by a group by Brutus and Cassius. Now, he left one heir who was his grandnephew by the name of Octavian. And Octavian ascended to be the next Caesar, if you will. And one of the things he does when he gets in power, he's going to punish all those people that were involved in the plot to assassinate his uncle. So it just kind of keeps going for a while. And then there was what was known as the Roman triumvirate, which was kind of a three-headed monster where it was three people that was kind of ruling different areas. One, we don't, we usually uh, leap at us, we kind of just forget about him. And the other one was Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony had a little encounter with a lady by the name of Cleopatra down in Egypt, if you recall that story. And if you uh, follow it through, Octavius, who then claims by the Roman Senate approved giving him the name Augustus Caesar, and that name means, by the way, Augustus means the exalted one. He had a little bit of pride, didn't he? Uh, so he has a battle with, with Mark Anthony and finally wins, and Mark Anthony commits suicide, and Cleopatra has a snake biter to commit suicide, and he becomes the undisputed ruler of the Roman Empire. So when Jesus is born, Caesar Augustus is the one on the throne. Now, he wants to be a dictator just as much as his uncle. But he saw what happened to his uncle when he became a dictator. He got stabbed to death by the Senate. So he's going to try a different tact. He's going to try to convince the population at large that he is so important and so grand that they're going to treat him that way without needing to have to go through the Senate approving him of that. And one of the ways that he does that is because shortly after Anthony is dealt with and so forth, Mark Anthony, there are some games that are going on in Rome. In Roman games, sort of like think Olympics, think a big you know, festival, circus, that kind of thing, uh, to honor Julius Caesar. And let me just show you a couple coins, and we're going to get out of the history lesson quickly for those of you that are already bored to tears. But you see that coin. On the, on the left side, it says Caesar Augustus, and that's an image of himself. 
On the other, there's a star with all those points around it. Notice at the very top of the star, there's this sort of flaming thing that goes upward. And then you see two Latin words. The Latin words translated into English are divine Julius, Julius Caesar, divine Julius. To make himself be more than he really was, he had, him, he had his granduncle declared not just to be a man, but declared to be a god, small g. And one of the things that happened in these games, a comet appeared in the sky that was visible for, for many days, and the people who were very superstitious about the gods and all that, he told them, and he fostered this, and many people fostered this, that that comet was the spirit of Julius Caesar coming back to put his blessing on this big event in Rome. And then the Roman Senate, after it's been cleaned out of all the rebels, declared, by the way, it's amazing how man can do this, they declared that Julius Caesar, even though now dead posthumously, he was not a man, but he was God. It just so happens that his great his grand nephew was his heir. So it's interesting that a title got attached to Caesar Augustus. If you think about it, you could guess it. If his heir before him was Julius the Divine, then, then Caesar Augustus was the son of God in their thinking. So flash forward with me. Let's just let's put a few things on the board. Caesar Augustus, he claimed to be a son of God, the son of God. In essence, by implication, if he is God's son, he was declaring that he was a man who had become God. After his death, by the way, in 14 B.C., the Senate did what they did for his predecessor. He was declared to be God. And by the way, this was the beginning of what we know as the the cult of Caesar. After this point, all the Caesars thought, let's get in on this act. If those guys were God, declare us a God too. And then anything we say and do has to be obeyed. Anything we say has to be of divine origin. And the Caesars began to be worshipped, which caused a little bit of a problem for the Christians of the 60s AD and beyond. The cult of Caesar required one thing that you would say, and that was simply this. You had to declare that Caesar is Lord. You were required in the Roman economy at least once per year to go into a temple, a pagan temple, preferably the temple of Zeus because he was the highest of their gods, and you would take a handful of incense, go to an altar with burning coals on it, throw your incense there, make a puff of smoke, and say, Caesar's Lord. If you did that, you had all the rights and privileges of Roman society. You could buy, you could sell, you could transact business, you could have contracts. You could be fully into the economy. If you refused to take a handful of incense and throw it on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord, you couldn't sign contracts. You had no legal standing. You couldn't buy and sell. You couldn't have favorable contracts. You were excluded from the economy of the day. You think about where that leaves you. So when Luke opens this book and he says, in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, the readers of this letter would have immediately thought of something. Maybe they said Caesar Augustus, and maybe they went, you know. Because the Roman emperors to a Jewish audience particularly, and then by virtue of its descendancy, a Christian audience would have felt the same way. And now we go forward in time and we, we understand that no longer is Augustus on the throne, having died in 14 BC. He's followed by Tiberius and Caglia and Claudius. And in the 60s AD, there's one on the throne by the name of Nero. 
If you've studied any history of Nero, you know one thing was he hated Christians. He blamed them for everything, chased them down, treated them horribly, and, and, and killed many of them for, just on a whim. So that's the time in which the original readers of Luke's book were reading. And when you see Caesar Augustus, it flashed forward. That the background was that indeed the claim was that a man could become a god. By the way, not an unheard of concept. We first run into it in the third chapter of Genesis, do we not? Where the serpent shows up and begins a conversation with Eve. and says, as God said, you can eat of every tree of the Garden of Eden. Well, everyone but that tree there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Satan says this. God knows if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like him. You will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. The first temptation that is on, on, on record was an opportunity for us to at least attempt this. We know it's impossible. But for, God, for man to become godlike. By the way, if you go back into the prehistory of Satan himself, what it was it that he wanted? Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 both indicate that he said, I will be like the Most High. He wanted godness, godlikeness for himself. So he tempts humanity with that, and it's no wonder that people who raise to great places of power do that as well. So when it opens up this book and we see the story of Jesus, this is what it says about Jesus Christ. Simply this, that Jesus Christ was proved to be the Son of God. How was it proven? Well, it was proven by the fact that he fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies concerning him. That couldn't have been duplicated without supernatural intervention. That he, he worked miracles. That there were eyewitnesses to this miracles. That it's documented even far better than the acts of Caesar Augustus are documented in historical documents. And the fact that the church is still here, even in spite of the Nero's of history, it says that what Jesus said is true. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We also know... As we understand the text and other things from the epistles, the letters, that truly this was the story of God who became a man. And for Christians, the thing that comes from our lips is simply this that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Lord. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior. That's what he came to do. Who is Christ, designated and equipped to do it the Lord, the superior one. When we say those words, we're saying he's superior to us, to us as individuals, us as families, us as nations, us as a race, us as all of us. He's Lord. He's Lord. So, how do we approach this? How do we, how do we understand this? This fact that set in this, in this context is this, this backdrop of a man who claimed to be God, and the story of God didn't just claim to be, but was one who became man. Well, that unfolds for us the, the gospel story. And it is remarkably simple when you think about it. You think about all the things in this world that are complicated. The gospel story is markedly simple. We are sinners. That's markedly simple. We have done things that have violated the holy laws of God. We are morally deficient before him. The Roman says it that we have come short of the glory of God because all of us have sinned. 
Our own conscience tells us that. Our own minds tells us that. Our own observation of the human race tells us that. It's markedly simple that we are people who are sinners. It's also markedly simple that because of this, death passed upon all men for all have sinned. The mark of death, the sentence of death is upon us. In fact, God had told Adam and Eve, the day you eat of that fruit is the day you die. They didn't physically die that day. They did physically die later on. But spiritually, they were cut off from God, and spiritually, they were dead. Dead, as it says in the New Testament, dead in their trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, with his great love with which he loved us, sent his son, who was God, to become a man, to live among us, to teach us, and eventually be condemned to a Roman cross by a Roman governor under a Roman emperor and had a Roman sign over his head that said this, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Written in ridicule, but spoken for our ears, absolute truth. He was on a Roman means of execution The Jewish means of execution was to stone someone to death. Brutal, yes, but frankly far less brutal than being nailed to a cross and hanged for hours in agony. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, and during those six hours he was on the cross. Not only was the brutality of Rome and the rejection of his own people upon him, but the wrath of Almighty God rested upon him as he became the sin bearer. So, So, markedly simple. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And in the simplicity of receiving that, it's not complicated. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves is a gift of God. Not of works lest anyone should boast. Belief, faith. If you come on this Christmas morning to celebrate, to enjoy the songs that we sing, the the decorations, and whatever your family traditions are. By the way, thank you for interrupting perhaps the normal flow of your family traditions to come and worship. But what a great thing to do, to come and gather as God's people, to sing, to worship, to listen to his word. I thank you for that. So this gospel is markedly simple. We, We accept it by belief. If you have received that, we celebrate differently, don't we? You know, we can enjoy all the traditions. We can love giving gifts and receiving gifts and eating and food and various gatherings, but we come with this reality that Jesus saves. This one who is the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Worship him thoroughly. Love him deeply. Serve him always. But if you're here this morning and you've never trusted him as Savior, just allow the simplicity of the gospel to warm your heart, to to tear down those walls of rebellion. Because in your heart of hearts, I think you would know this if you would open your heart to the truth, that living for yourself, striving yourself, trying to think that you're good enough to earn God's favor, all fail miserably before a God who is the Lord, the superior, the superior, superior, the one who's above all. And the great news is you don't have to do any religious stuff. You don't have to worry about changing your life at this juncture. You just need to believe and receive this 
salvation to you. In other words, to, through an act of your choice and belief, to say, I'm going to stake the destiny of my eternal soul on Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. The great news is he will forgive you. He will give you an eternal life. And this life that somehow has messed up now, he will start the process of helping you change that. If you want to know about change, you're surrounded by a whole group of people this morning that are still in process of changing. But that change will take place. So receive it. We could help you with that. Even at the end of this service, you can speak to one of us as pastors. Many of you have come with a Christian friend, perhaps, if you don't know him. Just say, I really need that Savior. I want you to go over that story with me again. Open the, open the book and look at those verses again. Take you back to verse 11. Please look at it in your text. For there's born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now let me just give us as believers three kind of word, a couple words of warning and one word of admonition, okay? Based on this reality. Number one, we should be aware of those who make themselves God. Well, there are no Caesars on the throne. There's plenty of people who act like it. There is no Roman Empire. There's many people who would do it if they could. And by the way, if you know your prophecy of the Bible, you also know that someday after the church is removed, thank God, that there's going to be another emperor ascend sort of out of the ashes and the the footprint and the shadow of the former Roman Empire. And of all the things that he does, all the power that he gains, all the territory that he occupies, the one thing that he will lust after and try to get is for people to worship him as divine. Maybe that coin with that little flame of the comet on it will be replicated in some other way yet future to say this one is divine. And not satisfied with that, we're told explicitly a shadow from an Old Testament story will be repeated again because in a newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, he will enter and set up his image in that place to replace the one true God. And however he would be designated by the population at that time, we know him as the Antichrist or the Beast, there will be those who say that he is Lord. But Luke says this, set against the backdrop of in the days, in the census, this decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that everybody had to obey. And Joseph had to take Mary on a trip that would not probably be very fun for a woman in, the, in you know, far along in her pregnancy to go to Bethlehem and all the things that ensued. But he wanted us to know there's born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, I told you earlier about that little incense that had to be thrown on the altar and you had to say Caesar's Lord if you wanted to be a good standing citizen. Interestingly, the Jews had an exemption. That's one of the reasons the book of Hebrews is in the Bible. Because when things got tough for a Jewish Christian, the easy thing to do would be, "Ah, I'm Jewish, give me that exemption. Rather than say, no, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and Jesus is Lord. That's the reason the writer of Hebrews, whoever he is, says that he's superior than the angels, superior to the law, superior to sacrifice, superior to everything else. It's a whole book about Jesus is Lord. And they had to make a decision. 
for the would-be men becoming gods of their day to say, am I going to follow what the, looks like the easy path? Or am I going to stand and say, Jesus is Lord, no matter what everybody else says? You see, this was written in that time of where Caesar Augustus and Caglia and Tiberius and then Nero were men who claimed to be God. And the countercultural position was this little ragtag group of Christians that said, no, Jesus is Lord. Maybe we'll be called upon to do that. We are called upon to, to obviously call him as Lord, but maybe we'll be called upon to do that in a difficult circumstance. But he is Lord. Number two, maybe even a little more uncomfortable, we can fall into the trap of making ourselves God. Well, we would never do that. I don't even have the opportunity to do that. Anytime we act like we know what we're doing, without God's guidance, we're acting like we're God. We are men who become God. We've replaced that place of God. Anytime we do not give him thanks and praise, we're stealing a little bit of his glory. Anytime we choose to violate what he says is explicitly wrong and we refuse to do what he says is explicitly right, we are saying we are superior to the superior. Rather than saying, yes, Lord, that's the way it is. We make ourselves God. The simplicity of avoiding that is simply this, to come back and understand what they believed from their experience and what they were taught and what the Bible teaches and what Luke had gifted them in their hands back in that day was, no, here's the reality. Here's the belief. Here's the, here's the bedrock of truth. This one who was born is Christ the Lord, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the Lord, Jesus is Lord. We come to believe that based on this text rather than what's going on on the outside. Thirdly, we should worship and share the one who was God and became a man. It's the only message that can save a soul, change a destiny, alter a life. Based on the prophecies and the eyewitness and the documentation and the history of the church, it's simple to understand and it's also simple to share. It's not complicated. Share that with people. You understand, even on Christmas morning, sometimes holidays we get extra people coming to church. I love that. People say, well, they only come to church on Christmas. Well, at least they're coming sometime. It's good stuff. I wish they came all the time, but celebrate what you have. And you understand this, but at our very best, the majority of the people in Kanawha County in Charleston, West Virginia, are not in church anywhere this morning or listening online or doing anything religious, spiritual. And the only way they're going to know is if we tell them, the one who was born, the Savior, is Christ the Lord. That's our job. That's our responsibility. Let's continue to make our remaining days about him and sharing his truth. I just imagine somewhere in a little church somewhere, maybe meeting in someone's open courtyard or in their house. I could see the, the, the mother of the house kind of sweeping it out because it's, it's Sunday morning, first day of the week. And they had to meet early because Sunday morning was a work day. It wasn't weekend. It was work day, Okay. So you had to come and meet early and get there and you come together and worship. That's the reason the writer of Hebrews, because they were facing, I don't want to identify with Christ. I can identify as a Jew and get off the hook. He says, no, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. That wasn't just a, a message so we can 
tell people go to church, which we say that often. But it's a message of saying, no, 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 no. You don't back down on the reality of the public nature of your faith when you proclaim Jesus. We proclaim Jesus as Lord every time we walk in this building, every time we open our Bibles, every time we do what we do as Christians. So we, I can just imagine some little church somewhere, a few people gathering, and they come in before work, and they gather, and they come in, and somehow a copy of the Gospel of Luke has fallen into their hands, and they're excited. Maybe they've met Luke, maybe they haven't, but they, they have this story, and they unroll the scroll. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus. He went to Bethlehem because he was the house and the lineage of David. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. There were shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel appeared to them and said these words as the light of the, this, this light shone around. Interesting, it says in verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shone around, the light, far eclipsing the light that was commemorated on that Roman coin. And he said, Don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born for you, to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And I can imagine those early Christians' ears perking up when they were reminded in the backdrop, in the drumbeat, that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. To hear that this one who was born was Christ. Not a Lord, but the Lord. Now, when they had their closing benediction and they left from their little church, it went, out into, it went out into a world where it did not look like the kingdom of Christ was on the ascendancy. Rome was in power. Danger lurked around every corner. It cost you something to follow Jesus. It didn't look like, from their senses in their mind, it didn't look like that things were going well for this thing called the church. We can find ourselves in the same moment, the same time, the same feeling today. We look around the world, this world, it's a mess with a capital M. It's a mess. It doesn't look like that, that, that it's a friendly place for us who are followers of Christ. We are the distinct minority. Sometimes our senses feel like it just doesn't seem to work. But they came back to this. And they chose to believe this rather than what they saw. We face the same moment. We face, we face the same choice. Are we going to look at the world and say, mess, we're in danger? Or are we going to say, this one who was born is Savior, Christ, and Lord, and act accordingly? During the time of the Civil War, the most popular poet of their day was a man named Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Interestingly, this year, Sight and Sound Films produced a film based on his life. Here's a little independent Christian film. First night at box office a few weeks ago. Number two at the box office. In its first weekend, it was in the top ten against hundreds of millions of dollars of Hollywood blockbusters. Tell the simple story of a man who had great tragedy in his life. Even though he was esteemed and he was famous, he was well off, well paid, well remunerated by his artistic endeavors with the pen. 
His first wife and first child died in childbirth. His second wife, married after that, after he was a, widow, he was a widower, died in a tragic fire. He could not even attend the funeral of his wife because he was so severely injured because he was burned greatly as he tried to save her life but could not. His son went off to serve on the North, with the northern forces in the Civil War against his father's wishes. He was wounded at a battle in Virginia. He came home not knowing whether he would live or die. This was the, the backdrop of this man. As he looked around, as he looked around at his life, everything out there seemed like, where's God? Where's the blessing? Where's the joy? We don't know exactly how he was inspired. We know how he put it in the text of his poem, which has now been set to music. But he, uh, he says, I heard the bells, the church bells ringing. And somehow, in that moment, he was taken off of the, the horizon around him, the emotions of the scene around him. And he pins these words. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. For us, here's the, the bell ringing. For it's born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Thank you for joining us for this time of worship and study brought to you by Mount Calvary Baptist Church in Charleston, West Virginia. If you are in the Charleston area, we would love for you to worship with us in person. For service times and more information, visit our website, calvarywv.com. Until next time, may His blessing be yours.